This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is June 15th, 2023. Please tell us your name and the years you were Hofstra Radio. My name is Marcello Carnevali. I was uh, initially at uh, WRHU from the year 1995 to 1999, I believe. Okay. Uh, what shows or programs did you work on at the station? Well, when I first started at uh, RHU, I was somebody that uh, I got my hands on everything. So I started uh, doing um, the Jazz Cafe, um, and I was doing that, and then I was doing Airwave. I was kind of, I was so pumped and energized and wanting to just participate that I really took any shift that I could and also, I just really wanted to understand and, and learn about radio and learn about the station. So I, I was always volunteering to take, when I first started at the, at the radio station, I, I was always volunteering to take whatever shift I could. So whether that, that was like a Sunday shift with the, the Polish music uh, show or, you know, a middle of the night shift, after, you know, like 2 a.m. shift, I was always, you know, volunteering because I just enjoyed it. And I just wanted to be a part of it so much. So I like to think I was a bit of a Renaissance guy when I first started there. I was kind of doing everything. Oh, I'd love to hear it. Uh, that's that's good stuff. Did you have any titles or positions at the station? Yeah, I was. Uh, I became the producer of the Aggressive Edge for about three years from 19, uh, I believe it was the end of 96 to when I left the radio station, which was around 98 or 99 can't you know memory's a little hazy mm -hmm. right now but um around there so i was the producer of the aggressive edge uh which uh, you know if any of your listeners know was the underground uh heavy metal hardcore punk rock independent scene uh music program that was on weeknights uh late night okay from like uh 11 to 3 or something like that what was the yeah, time that, I, yeah it was the late later shift it came on we came on right after airwave and it was the late night shift, which was in, in hindsight, you know, it, it, it's, it didn't work out well if you had a class or an exam mm -hmm. the next morning, mm -hmm. but for the show itself, it was the perfect time slot considering the time, uh, the time, uh, the, the music scene at the time in the area of Long Island, it, it really was what was the catalyst in making the show what it was. Okay. When you were on the air, did you use your own name? Did you have a nickname or on-air persona? Well, I learned very early on in my life when in the, I'm not initially from the United States. I'm an immigrant. I came to the United States in the early 80s when I was uh, about five, six years old. And uh, I learned very early on that if the United States, your name is not John or Jim or Scott or Mike, or uh, that people have a very hard time, hard time pronouncing your name. So uh, my name, Marcello Carnevali, really wasn't a, um, somebody once told me it wasn't a commercially viable name. Mm. So uh, I adopted a nickname and uh, a guy by the name of Derek, I can't remember his last name, is responsible for this. But I was kind of trying to figure out a, a, a moniker when I first started at the station uh, to go by and I was kind of a larger, heavy set person at the time. And uh, Derek was like, hey, man, why don't you call yourself uh, uh, the Big M, you know, and give yourself, you know, make you sound like larger than life. And I was like, eh, Big M, it's a little kind of insulting. Uh, it's a little insulting. So we, we kept talking about it. He's like, oh, well, you're mighty, man. You're big and you're mighty. 
So I said, oh, so I'm mighty. So the mighty M. So that was kind of where that happened and that kind of stuck. And from henceforth, then uh, the name bequeathed to me was the mighty M. And that was the name that I was known by. And that was the name that was given to me in, in, uh, in RHU that day and forever known in the hallowed halls of Dempster as the mighty M infamously, I would point out. Was that just on the aggressive edge or was that on all shows? That was just on the aggressive edge. Okay. Uh, when I was on, um, when I was on, uh, when I did airwave uh, and I don't know if anybody will get the reference here, but my, I used the name Jimmy Bravo and I spoke with an English accent and I talked like this and I was like, Hey, Welcome to Airwave. My name is Jimmy Bravo. Today we're going to be listening to a little bit of, you know, Blue Oyster Cult, you know, stuff like that. And if anybody's familiar, Johnny Bravo was the moniker that uh, Greg Brady on the Brady Bunch used for his rock star personality. So I didn't want to be too obvious. So I called myself Jimmy Bravo and I did that. And on the Jazz Cafe, I I referred to myself as um, uh, just just the, uh, I really, I don't think I really even referred to myself as anything. I avoided the issue probably, <laughs> but I would just be, you know, so, um, but mainly, uh, I was known at the station, uh, with all the, and around town and with all the bands and all the record executives and record people and, uh, music people as the mighty M and kind of built a little rep around that. So. Yeah, you got yourself your own brand there. That's pretty yeah, impressive. Yeah, I did. And it was it, before people, before Instagram, before social media, I was very good at branding myself. I had a, I had hats, I had t-shirts, I had business cards. I I really went into that. And, uh, you know, so I, I would like to consider myself as one of the, the uh, first influencers, which, you know, is probably not something I should probably <laughs> say. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll try to look at the positive angle of it yeah, and, and then yeah. other people ruined it you did it yeah. well and other people ruined it okay i was i was i was an influencer when it was still cool to be an influencer right right um just curious any reason for the english accent was it just fun or for with the airwave persona well, i i didn't speak english when i first came to this country um i didn't i i didn't speak english at all and uh when I was a little kid, I used to, little kids used to be afraid of me because I used to scream at them in Italian. And why won't you play with me? Why won't you play with me? And these kids screaming at us in this gibberish. What, what the heck is he talking about? So uh, while I was learning English, I used to kind of um, caricature all the television programs that I watched growing up. So like Transformers and He-Man and, and GI Joe. And I would like, repeat the words back and repeat the words back. And over time, uh, my English got better. I lost my accent and I found that I had, you know, gotten this really, really great ability to mimic people and to mimic accents. So I always like doing that. I always like putting on accents. The only problem was, is that I got so used to like mimicking that when I came to Long Island and I used to live in upstate New York and when I came to Long Island, I would subconsciously mimic people's accents back to them when they were talking to me. So, you know, I'd be talking to some guy from Massapequa and he'd be like, hey, man, how you doing? You know, I'm from well, here at Hofstra and I just automatically start talking to him back like that. That's great. I'm from upstate New York. I'm from Italy. How you doing? Oh, you're from Italy. You know, so I just <laughs> I just always had fun with accents 
So I would just, and it, plus, you know, it was, it was radio, it was faceless. So I could, you know, be somebody else. And that was one of the appeals for me. I could, I could kind of be, invent the character, be somebody, whoever I wanted to be on the radio. So I would invent these characters to do these radio slots. And, and Jimmy Bravo was one of them. And he was, you know, he was from London and, you know, he drove a really nice motorbike and he loved music and he was great, you know? So I'd build these characters and kind of just have fun with them. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so you mentioned you weren't from Long Island. How did you wind up at Hofstra? And did you have the radio station in mind when, when you first came to the university? I did. Um, so I, 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 I was, when my, my family moved here, we moved to a small town in upstate New York near Woodstock in Ulster County. And um, I really didn't like my high school. I just really didn't fit in there and everything like that. So I actually took my senior year of high school at the local SUNY college. It was SUNY Ulster. And so I did my senior year of high school at a community college, basically. Uh, and they had a small little radio station and it was called WRSR. It was a really low power AM station. And that's and I, and I just wanted to do it just cause I was very curious about it because like I was a big ham and I loved to, you know, I loved old radio shows growing up and I was like, you know, I'm going to try this radio thing. So I actually started at that radio station and that, that was the definition of a, of a real true pirate college radio station. I mean, the saying at the station was don't walk away or we'll fade away that because the power was the low, the transmitter was so low power that, you know, if you walk like 10 feet away from the main campus, like you couldn't pick us up. So, um, that's really where I kind of got my, uh, interest in radio and I had a show there and I was doing a lot of stuff there. And then when it was time for me to go to a university, I was, uh, very much into broadcasting and film and I was looking at a lot of film schools and, and, you know, I was, you know, looking at NYU and SUNY Purchase and UCLA and Columbia and all, all the, you know, the, the, the regular film schools that when you say film school, people think of. And uh, I went to Hofstra kind of on a whim to just, you know, check it out. You know, I, no, no harm, no foul. They kind of offered me this whole thing to come check out Hofstra. And they're like, we just built this brand new and like I said, Dempster was less than a year old when I got there. And so everything was brand new. So, and a lot of the universities that I was visiting, their, you know, broadcasting equipment hadn't been updated in decades, even though there were these big, they were these big time, you know, film and television programs and broadcasting programs. They were very antiquated in terms of their equipment. They were still using stuff from the mid to late 80s, some even earlier. And here I am walking into Hofstra and this brand new building with these brand new state of the art broadcast level equipment. I was blown away. I was just like, wow, wow, look at all this stuff. You mean the TV studio, the radio station? You know, I had worked, you know, in actual like, TV studios and radio stations when I was a kid, you know, like just, you know, cause it's like for like interning jobs and summer jobs and stuff. And it blew me away. And I was like, wow, all this stuff is like brand new. It still had that like new smell to it. Everything mm -hmm. was, was shiny. And, and I was like, I, this is, this is cool. If I come if I go to Hofstra, this is what I want to do. And then when I finally ended up at Hofstra, I, I was like immediately first, first day, uh, I, I put in my, uh, I walked right over to Dempster and just kind of 
pounded on the door and was like, Hey, how do I sign up for the radio station? And I think, and I can't remember, but I think there was a rule back then that said that you couldn't sign up for the radio station your first semester. I think your first semester, you weren't allowed to participate in certain programs. I, hmm. I don't know if that was a, I'm, I really, I'm, and I keep thinking about this and I, I really remember that this was a thing that you weren't like allowed to enter, you know, certain programs like your, your very first semester semester at the school, because I remember going and meeting Bruce, uh, I think I had like my second day on campus and I went and I met Bruce and I'm like, I really want to take the, the radio course. I want to be really involved. And that was the first day that I met Bruce. And that was, or how shall I say the first day Bruce met me. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I told him about my background at, at the old college and the old radio station. I, I gave him a demo tape that I had actually made from the old radio station. And, you know, he, he, he let me in. He let me, you know, start early. He, he gave me a pass and he let me. So I actually was in the training class in the, in the fall of 95. And I believe I started in uh, January or February of 96. Do you remember anything from that training class? Maybe people who were in it or things that you learned and, you know, you came in with some experience. Did you think, right. Oh, I don't need this training class. I'll just do this. Cause they're telling me to like, what was it? Yeah, I did. I thought, you know, obviously, and, and since back then, you know, I was what, like a 17, 18 year old kid with a big chip on his shoulder. So I thought I didn't need anything, any, any help, you know, but you have to realize that I was coming from a scrappy pirate like college radio station to RHU, which was being built as a professional curriculum based professional broadcasting institution. So a lot of, so I didn't really get like serious instruction in radio policy and proper engineering in FCC compliance and stuff like that, you know, at my old station, because they were literally fly by the seat of their pants. They really didn't care. So I came in with all this. I don't need to take this class. I'm just going to get on the mic. I'm going to do my thing, blah, 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 blah. And I figured out, and well, I didn't figure out, I was kind of, you know, thrown real quick and kind of made to realize real fast that, no, 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 I need to take this course. This is, this is, this is, this is not. So I kind of learned real quick to shut my mouth and, and listen and, and take the class. And also when I, when we kind of did the studio tour and, you know, the board that I was using at, at the, at SUNY Ulster was like from 1978. And all of a sudden I'm faced with this big, massive board with all these buttons and lights and switches and a master control and all these different things. I'm like, uh, 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 you know, so I, I learned very quickly that to just sit down, shut up, listen, take the course and take notes. Was Bruce teaching the course? Yes. Bruce and a couple of his, uh, I guess, senior level people. Uh, one of them was Roman and, uh, there was another person. I, I can't remember her name, but Roman was one of the first people I met. And one of the first people that kind of was like one of the mentor figures that I had at the station. And as well as Bruce, I have to say overall, Bruce, Bruce Avery was my mentor overall at the station but roman kind of uh got me 
into you know doing what I what I ended up doing with aggressive edge and everything like that. So Roman was responsible for that, and um, it was it was it was fun. I mean, we all it was a classroom. We were all sitting there, and we all kind of learned everything. And and Roman and the other person would teach the class, and then Bruce would kind of sit there and he'd interject things you know, in the middle of it, he'd, and he'd come have these really great stories and come up with really great. And it's so funny because a lot of the stuff that Bruce told us in those classes, I tell to people that work under me today and work under, you know, people that come to work for me and work under me because I still work in broadcasting and production. Uh, I, I still kind of, uh, give, give those little, you know, uh, uh, sayings that Bruce gave us to, to the people that work for me now. So I kind of passed them on. So, but yeah, I'm sorry. Can you give an example of something that you pass along that came yeah, from the Bruce? One thing that I, <laughs> the one thing that I always tell uh, people, uh, especially when you're dealing with open mics and the one thing that Bruce always said, and I will, I will be put this in the best terms possible. He says, an open microphone and a hot open microphone is an a-hole magnet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I always say that to everyone that I work with. I said an open mic is an a-hole magnet. Is if anybody sees that there is a microphone where they can be heard, and you know without any constraints or anything, you will attract the biggest a-holes. And I think that really carries through to today, especially into our. Uh, completely anonymous uh, broadcasting society in terms of social media and and everything like that. Uh, you know, uh, you give anybody a, an open platform and you will attract the worst kind of people. And and Bruce was uh, right on the nose with that one. And I still use the, that to this day. Um, what did you think about hearing that at the time? Did it make sense to you as an 18-year-old? Um, you know, yeah, you know, it's funny. No. Because, you know, as an 18 year old, like I said, he had a huge chip on my shoulder back then. I was always like, "Ah, what does this guy know? This guy doesn't know anything about anything. So and then I realized that I was the (laughs) (laughs) a-hole. And then when I finally realized, wait a minute, I'm the a-hole. He's right. Okay. so, um, yeah. So uh, I have to say, Bruce put up with a lot, a lot. And uh, uh I got I would I'll say that the person that I I was when I started at RHU was very different than the person that I ended up becoming at RHU. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds very familiar. That's that's a really nice way of putting that. Now, to double back to that to that quote, when you pass that along to new hires or new people and you can do you say I went through this too, and this is why it's true. Or, or how does that land when you sell it now? You know, I try and take credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> I try and seem like I'm the sage, the wise, you know, the wise one. Uh, I, I, you know, it, uh, I, in every type of situation like this, and especially with when you have somebody in your life, like Bruce or or like Roman or like anybody who mentors you, you know, they, you pass on that advice, not to take credit for it or not to kind of, 
you know, just, just because you want it to, to continue, you want it to persist because it's good advice. So you want it to just, and you always want the people that are kind of going to be taking over and continuing to just kind of carry on that advice. So, um, you know, I don't really sit there and go, well, back in my day, we had to do this and this and this. No, I just, it, because it's always relevant. It's always going to be relevant, you know, no matter, uh, you know, where you are and when you are. And so I, today I just, you know, I just kind of say it. And if they think that it comes from me, great. If they want to learn more, I'll gladly tell them, but I, I don't give away too much. Okay. Okay. I, I, Imagine it becomes, and not just that piece of advice, but all the things that you learned from Bruce and from the station, it becomes part of who you are. So it's not like you're borrowing from someone. It is part of you. And I'm, oh, I'm pretty confident that Bruce probably borrowed that from someone else and turned yeah, it into his true. thing. Yeah. And that's, that's always in this, in, in the broadcasting industry, it's always kind of that master and apprentice relationship. And it's always kind of like, and it's always, you always find the older people who have been in the business longer always have like a feeling, a, a feeling of a responsibility to kind of impart their experience and their knowledge and their, you know, stories to the people under them, the people coming up. It's always kind of, it's always been that way. And every, in every, if whether I've worked in television or if I've worked in film or if I've worked in uh, the music industry or radio, it's always been that where it's always the older people have feel like this responsibility to tell the younger people, the people that are just coming up, you know, their experience so that they might maybe not repeat the mistakes or maybe improve upon, you know, the things that they did in the past, you know. And the young gun comes in and says, I don't need to listen to you. And then they repeat the mistake yeah. and they learn it. And yeah. then they learn real quick. Yes, <laughs> they do have to listen or they, or they don't make it. And that's, right. that's the thing is a lot of people, you know, you don't necessarily have to agree with those that came before you, but you have to respect those that came before you because, you know, they're the reason that you're there now. Yeah, I'm just I'm just nodding my head in agreement. I don't. That's that's <laughs> well, you know how a, it is. A, no, it's a really nice way to put it. That's that's yeah. It's the 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 work and the sacrifices that go in. It's all part of the process. It's all part of the continuation. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure you yourself have felt the need to kind of educate maybe somebody who's a little more who's very green, and not just not just you know to make sure that they're doing the right, but because. I think you, you, you feel kind of a kinship to them. It's like, I remember when I was like that. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was, you know, didn't know my butt from a hole in wall and it was great when somebody helped me out. So you kind of want to pass that on. Absolutely. Very cool. So, so you go through this training program and right. you get on the air. Do you remember your first time getting on your, on the air? And if not specifically the first time, like your feelings about, cause you had some experience. Yeah. You had you had been on uh, behind the mic and behind the board, but now you're stepping up to another level. What were you thinking getting on the air? Well, like I said before, like the radio station I'd worked at was like, even if somebody was listening, you'd never know, you know, because it was so low power and it was so confined. So and I was that kind of smart aleck kid. So I smartened up real quick when and I remember it was the Jazz Cafe that I did. 
And I sat there and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm just going to play some music and talk on the mic and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden the phone starts ringing and I'm like, wait, 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 what? what's what's going on and then people start calling me and actually asking me for stuff and i didn't really know a lot about jazz mm. so i had these people on the phone calling me going uh yeah hey man can you play the cut from you know uh billy johnson's 1987 album the one where he's on the horn and not on the sax you know the third cut from the ep from columbia the third pressing from the master and i'd be like uh okay so i kind of and and i kind of just was starting and then you know i and then trying to remember all of like what not to say and what i could say and then and then of course i i remember succinctly that my very first broadcast i played uh i played a track that had an obscenity on it it wasn't a bad obscenity i think it was uh sh you know the sh word uh but it did have it because I, I was fumbling and I was nervous and, and I played the wrong track and, and, you know, of course Bruce comes in and he's looking at me and I'm just like, what, what I do, what I do. He's like, yeah, you know, I played the wrong track. And I was like, Oh no. And I, and I immediately think that the FCC is going to find the school like a million dollars and we're going to go to jail and then it's all my fault and everything like that. But, but you know, it ended up, you know, being nothing. But like I said, you know, as a kid that came in with this really, really big chip on his shoulder, I found out real quick that this was not the dinky little pirate college radio station that I'd cut my teeth on, that this was, this was a real, this was the real deal. This was the real jam and that I had to start, you know, paying attention and, and putting the work in and behaving myself in order to, 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 to do it. And so I did. Was there a particular moment or a period of time where you realized, okay, I've, I've got the hang of this. I can, I can do this and uh, I can see where I want to go. Uh, you know, it was when, um, you know, Roman and this guy named Steve uh, used to do the aggressive edge uh, before me. And it was my genre of music. You know, I grew up listening to all types of music, but I really fell in love with the harder stuff uh, when I was in high school and, and, and in college and everything. And, um, I was doing the jazz cafe. I was doing airwave. I was doing, you know, all these other programs and I was just really, really kind of bored. And I was really kind of just like, ah, you know, and, and then, you know, one day I sat in with, uh, Steve doing the aggressive edge and it just, it just, it just felt right because it was the type of music i was really into it was all these new bands that i'd never heard of it it had already had this really kind of underground popularity and i was like i want to do this and then immediately right then and there i was like this is this is what i want to do i want to do this show i'll still do you know whenever somebody needs a time slot film but but i want to i want to do this so it was it was really when i started working with roman and steve on aggressive edge that i really kind of found my uh calling so to speak at the station Hmm. so you mentioned um roman and steve and bruce who else was around in your early days that that helped you out whether it was getting used to being there socially or doing stuff on air there were so many people and one of the things that you know we were talking you know one of the common commonalities of everybody that worked at rhu is that it was always a camaraderie there so 
you were always, you might've not been like close friends, but you were always friendly mm. with everyone. And you had your groups of friends and you had people that you knew. And, you know, um, there were people like Derek and he was a guy I hung out with a lot. And, and you know, a couple of the uh, the community volunteers, uh, Teddy Savalas' brother. Uh, uh, oh, God, I can't remember his name. Was Tell- um, but- well, yeah, it was Teddy Savalas. Yeah, Teddy, Telly, Telly, yeah, it was Teddy Savalas. Telly was his brother, right? And he he had the show there, and and he reminded me a lot of my dad. So I used to, you know, talk to him a lot, and and uh, the guy, the people that did the Italian show, I they were really fun to hang out with because I felt at home with them because they, you know, they really only did the show in Italian and everything like that, and I felt very much like I was at home because we yeah. only spoke Italian mainly in my house. So uh, that, but you know. In all honesty, everybody was, we were all friends. We were all acquaintances. Unfortunately, I, I, not a lot of them I kept in touch with. Uh, you know, we all kind of, once I left Hofstra, I kind of went my separate way and really didn't maintain contact with a lot of people. I've only recently come back into contact with people like Sean and Tracy and, and, uh, and, and, but I have to say that if, if really the people that made, if, if any one person made any kind of a serious impact on my time at the radio station and in my life in general, it was Bruce Avery. Bruce Avery, you know, I don't know if you've ever done this, but have you ever kind of said to yourself, oh, if I win an award, who am I going to thank? Mm-hmm. You know, how somebody stands up and they win an Oscar or an Emmy and they have a list of people that they want to thank. Have you ever thought to yourself, oh, who would be on that list? other than mom and dad, obviously. And I, whenever I would think that, whenever I would, and and I have accepted a few awards at the time, Bruce was always a person that I put on that list. He, he was that influential in how I shaped my professional career. Because if anything, I would say Bruce took me, who was this kind of really naive, obnoxious, kid with a huge chip on his shoulder and instead of kind of running away from me or deflecting me or taking all of the energy that I had and just kind of like you know diffusing it he was the first person that kind of recognized it and and aimed it and directed it and took it and said okay you have all this energy you have all this passion you have all this enthusiasm and ambition let's direct it. Let's point it in the right direction and make it work for you. And he, out of everybody, taught me a lot about professionalism, professionalism, being ethical, being professionally ethical in dealing with people and dealing with crisis and dealing with problems. And he was just always there. And he under, and the great thing about him is, is that he understood that, you know, what my ambition often you know, superseded my logic, mm-hmm. so to speak. So I would of, often think with my act with my heart instead of thinking with my head. Um, and instead of kind of berating me for that or penalizing or punishing me for that, Bruce was somebody that recognized that and said, okay, your spirit is in the right place, but let's just kind of, you know, make it do it the right, do it the right way, you know? And so if anybody really that I remember the most from Hofstra was Bruce. 
So you mentioned a couple of times sort of your spirit and enthusiasm got beyond you a little bit or, or what you were trying to do. Was there something specific? Were, were there mistakes that happened or problems? What, what happened and how did Bruce sort of direct you? Well, I had the distinct honor, and I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, of getting Bruce in his pajamas, in his slippers, out of bed at two o'clock in the morning to the radio station to talk to me for something that I was doing on the air. <laughs> I had that distinct pleasure. Because, and, you know, Bruce always used to joke, you know, I'm always listening. And we always used to be like, ah, no, Bruce, uh, Bruce is not always listening. He was. He was always listening. So I, I had brought in this band, uh, and it was a big deal for me because uh, at the time, uh, some record labels were kind of seeing the value of Aggressive Edge. We had become, we had grown in, in many respects and had become quite big in, in our market. We actually beat out some of the commercial radio stations in terms of ratings. And uh, we were becoming really good through word of mouth, through we had built this really great team, me, Tracy, Rafal, Roman. We had this great group of people. We were going to concerts. We were getting our name out there. We had built this big kind of following that we were getting influential. So the record companies that would give me the time of day when I was trying to, you know, get artists or get material, started returning my phone calls. Mm -hmm. So instead of, you know, scrappy garage record company only talking to me, now I had Virgin. Now I had TVT Records. Now I had, uh, you know, Columbia or Sony, you know, going, hey, you know, we heard you, you guys over at RHU make a lot. So I had this band that this one, uh, I, and I think it was, um, it was Maverick, which was Madonna's label, mm -hmm. uh, was pushing at the time. And they're like, we want to send them down to RHU for an interview, which was a really, really big deal for me. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay, great. You know, they were going to do all this stuff and promote it and everything like that. And I was like, great, that's cool. And of course, that same day, I came down with like the flu. So I had like 102 fever and I was like, I got to do the show. I got to do the show. I don't care. I got to do the show. So I went on the air in a, with a fever and I felt like utter crap. I felt terrible. And, you know, you don't realize it at the time, but whereas I was usually a really, really good interviewer, I must have sounded like terrible because all of a sudden I'm doing this interview and I look on the camera and I see, and cause we had this camera in the studio that had a, on the back door. So you could see if somebody was buzzing in on the back door and I see Bruce looking up at the camera, like he was staring through the camera directly <laughs> at me and I'm like, Oh my God, what's going on? And, and so I put on a big cut and I go outside and he's standing there and he's like, do you have any idea how you sound? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, what's going on? And, and, he obviously saw then that I was not in the best of shape. And he just looked at me and he's like, listen, you know, you got, you know, like an hour left. He's like, do better. You know, you really, you're better than this. You got to do better. You really have to do it. And, and uh, so I went back in and I, and I sucked it up as much as I can. And I think I swallowed about a whole bottle of Tylenol or whatever. And I went back in and I, and I finished the show and lo and behold, they all left and um, Bruce was still there. 
And he looked at me and he's like, you know, next time, you know, call somebody, you know, next time don't do the show. And he kind of gave me a little, you know, talking to, and, and, and that was it. And, and since that point, every time I saw him, it was kind of like a little joke between he and I, it was like, don't make me, you know, show up in the middle of the night again. But I had the distinct pleasure of rousting him from his bed and proving to everyone, because then after that, I would say to everybody, yo, he actually is listening. He actually is listening. He's, he's not kidding. He's listening when he's not here, he goes home when he has it on. So, um, I had that distinct honor and pleasure of getting him out in his jammies in the middle of the night in the cold. That is a famous line that many people mentioned from the training class as Bruce would say, I would, I'd like to sleep at night. And the implication is don't mess up and make me show up in the middle of the night. Uh, and, and, and yeah, it's, it's a legitimate thing. He really showed there up. There was a rumor that he had like one of those like permanent, you know, closed circuit speakers on his bedside table that was just literally <laughs> always on RHU. Uh, had like a, a 24 hour RHU feed. That was the rumor going around. Oh, that's funny. Um, well, thank you for sharing that story about Bruce. And I think that that exemplifies a lot of his leadership styles that he's holding, he's setting high standards yes. and holding you to account. Absolutely. And when you don't necessarily make it or you can do better, he's not coming at you in a negative way. He's saying, let's, like you said, do better. Most of the time, if you, he could recognize when you recognize that you messed up. Mm-hmm. And if he saw that you recognized that you messed up, he didn't like grind the needle in. He just kind of was like, okay, you get it. Do better. You know, he didn't like just keep nailing away. At you. And that was what he was incredibly understanding. If, if he saw that you were growing and learning from your mistakes, he was incredibly understanding and allowing you to make those mistakes and grow from them. Mm. So we've got all these stories and these memories and these experiences, which obviously have stayed with you a long time. And we kind of hinted at this earlier, but I'm going to ask you to time travel or go back in your mind to being 17, 18 years old and showing up at this training class or, or, you know, maybe that first meeting with Bruce, um, you know, at that point, what did you hope the radio station would be for you and what did it become? Well, you know, initially I, I started at RHU because I just, I always had fun on the radio. Hmm. I always had fun. Like I said, I could be somebody else. I could invent this character. I could be, I could, you know, escape from my life for an hour, two hours, whatever, and be in the radio world. And so for me, I really didn't go into it with a career mind at first. I went into it just merely to have fun and because I enjoyed doing it. And so when I started out at RHU, it was just something to do. It was something to have fun, some hobby project to do. And then, and as you said, Bruce was kind of trying to get you to instill these kind of professional attitude and, you know, professional behavior to you. And then as I kind of experienced how um, RHU operated, which it wasn't this rinky-dink pirate college radio stations, which so many radio college radio stations were. I mean, RHU operated with 
a professional, you know, mainstream industrial level of, you know, professionalism, mm-hmm. you know, not to sound redundant, but it, it operated like a mainstream radio station better than some mainstream radio stations. And once I was involved in that, and once I saw that, and once I experienced that and saw how, you know, you know, the, the industry worked and I learned from people like Roman and Steve about, you know, the record companies and how tracking music. And then, you know, just, I always had this love of the music itself. Then it started to become something more and I started to want more from it. And then when I took over uh, the aggressive edge from Steve and I started seeing the potential for this, then all of that ambition that I have. And that was something that Bruce kind of, when he gave me the position, he, he wanted me to direct all my energy and all of my, for lack of a better term, piss and vinegar, Mm -hmm. um, into that. And that's what I did. He, he kind of guided me into that position because he saw that I could do that. And then that just took over. And for a long time, that show became my job, my career. And I, that's when I really started seeing it as a potential for, you know, a future, a career, a future in broadcasting, a future in, in the music business. And, um, and I just hit it full force and I started pushing the show. I started pushing our DJs. I started rearranging the format. You know, it used to be aggressive edge was used to be just, you know, they would just play the same metal or just, you know, metal all from the, the different genres all screwed, you know, throughout the, the show every night over the week. But I said, no, 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 no. There's so many layers to this. Let's, let's do it different. So I, I encouraged the DJs, the aggressive edge DJs to kind of have their own voice and, you know, have their own music attached to that voice and kind of only, like you said, build their own brand for their show. So it wasn't just one generic show that was on Monday through Friday. It was like you were getting a different kind of aggressive edge every night. Cause I wanted people to kind of realize, Oh, uh, Tracy's on tonight. So that means we're going to get more, you know, like metal, you know, like nineties metal. Oh, let's listen to Tracy or, or Rafal is on, you know, I, uh, on Thursday night. So, and he, he likes to play industrial metal. So I like industrial metal. So we're going to listen to Rafal. So I, I tried to create these things and really that was, it was when I was doing that and I was creating and I was building these relationships with these record companies and these labels and everything and getting us more and more out there and going to concerts and going to shows and, and people like, Hey, you're mighty M. Uh, Wow. I thought you'd look different. (laughs) You know, that's what I always got. And uh, you know, bringing every, and I always tried to include everybody with me, all the DJ, all the aggressive edge people with me. I tried to like, I really wanted to build like a click and, because, you know, at the time, our main competition was W, um, this guy Fingers, who mm-hmm. did a metal show on, I think it was BAB, and this other college radio station called WSOU, yeah. which was in Jersey that was really, really big. And I wanted to, I was like, let's beat them. And it, it kind of gave me like this very competitive drive. I want to beat BAB. I want to beat SOU. I want everybody to know us. And it, it, it got to the point where, you know, we would show up at shows and they brought us up on stage and we're like, it's the Mighty M from RHU guys. And people are like, woo, and we'd give away stuff. And, 
And like I said, you know, one day Bruce called me into his office and he put a rating sheet in my hand. He says, look at that. And I looked at our time slot and I looked at the rating sheet and, and there we are. RHU beating out BAB, CBS. We beat out the commercial radio stations for our, for the aggressive edge time slot. And I remember looking at Bruce and he just had this big grin on his face and he was like, you know, you know, don't great kid like Han Solo. Don't great kid. Don't get cocky. But mm-hmm. of course I was incredibly cocky back then. And that's what I did. I got even cockier. So, um, but it was really then that I, I really saw it as a potential career and as a potential for a future. And um, unfortunately, uh, life kind of got in the way and I ended up having to leave early and leave the station for personal reasons and familiar reasons. And, and uh, I ended up uh, back in broadcasting in television and film. And uh, so I, I didn't go back into, I worked in the music business very briefly uh, for a few years and, and really didn't find my way there. And I went, so the, but I still stayed in broadcasting and a lot of the lessons and especially the professional decorum and the professional ethics and in, you know, was, I took away from RHU. I learned a lot of that in RHU and how to, and how to talk to people, how to treat people and just how to, you know, be a good manager and deal with things. And that was one of the great things about RHU is that it was still a college radio station, but it was a professional radio station. Mm -hmm. So you still had that college experience, but you learned what it was, well, how to, perform in a professional environment in a professional broadcast environment and that was a big leg up for a lot of people Mm. what starts off as just a a a fun thing to do becomes a community it becomes a career becomes a passion absolutely what a journey and i know a lot of people from rhu just kept going and you know like uh you know some people kept in the business and went on to bigger and better things, running their own stations, running their own programs, being their own record labels running. So, you know, a lot of RHU produced a lot of people that went out and it's always better that you're better when you leave than when you first started. And every, and I could say everybody that started at RHU was better when they left than when they began. You mean in terms of their radio skills or, or them as a person? Both. I mean, because, you know, you have to, yeah, you had to perform, not just, you know, complete your tasks in terms of being a good engineer and, and filling your time slot and doing your checks and everything like that, but you had to do it in that professional way. You didn't, and you had to, you had to do all the paperwork, you had to do all the reporting, you had to do everything through the chain of command, do it the right way. So yeah. So not only just in being a radio person, but just in being a professional person and being a, you know, a work oriented career person. And that was those skills that I got. And I, a lot of people did too. Mm. Amen to that. Um, this has been so much fun. Thank you for yeah, sharing you. your stories and, Thank and you. your time. And, and I get this sense we're just scratching the surface of your stories. <laughs> oh, you should see if you get a couple drinks in me. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll take you up on that someday. Well, I've got another <laughs> set of questions too. We'll do that as well. But this, is, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. It was great to uh, travel down memory lane with you.